brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Here we go, folks. Welcome to the little show within the big show. Here to help you navigate the rough waters of the vast conspiracy from sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood. And it's no surprise that this world is full of secret orders, think tanks, governments, companies, and cabals all trying to take the iron throne atop the power pyramid. And the tangled web can sometimes get so complex that I find it useful to hold them all up to the light individually, one by one. And today, it's Israel's time to shine, so to speak. And it's probably well past due, because the Zionist network takes up one hell of a slice of the conspiratorial pie, comprised of banking billionaires, long-running bloodlines, and ideological fanatics who have been more successful than we know in recent years, stacking the deck in their favor, compromising powerful people with entrapment and blackmail, infiltrating governments the world over, and planting some digital seeds that are already growing into quite the bountiful harvest. Because we know the world is in the process of massive geopolitical changes and power dynamic swings, we hear about things like the One Belt, One Road initiative, social crediting, controllable cryptocurrency, and the reshaping of the world order, knowing that in our integrated digital era, software, surveillance, and electronic control is the name of the game, and when was the last time you asked who really holds those keys? Well, today's guest is just the guy to answer that question. His name is Jeremy Roth Kuschel, a proud member of the radical middle and self-described Jewish American patriot of conscience. He has a background in politics with experience in community organizing, media jamming, documentary journalism, and consensus building. He's also worked in permaculture, Future Roots music production, performance and education. A true champion of the people, Jeremy has successfully mined his diverse toolbox and built out concepts like political permaculture and hip-hop empowerment. And if that wasn't enough, dear people, he's also the co-host and producer of The Antidote and a regular contributor to programs like False Flag Weekly News and Talpiot Talk. Well, I know I'm psyched to get into it. The dynamic do-gooder, Israeli infiltration educator, and professor of political permaculture, Jeremy Roth Kuschel. Welcome to the higher side. Thank you so much, Greg, and I appreciate the attention and care that you bring not only to your introductions, but to the kinds of questions that you ask. <laughs> thank you, man. Thank you. I try. You know, I'm, I'm doing the best uh, I can for my simple stoner mind, but... <laughs> 
Hey, I think this is going to be a lot of fun. Thanks for being here. It's going to be really eye-opening for this audience, I think. We have a great list of topics that I think have been kind of neglected around here that we're going to cover. And as diverse as this show's subject matter can be, these things we have in store are some of the most important issues of our time. And I've been really impressed with not only the depth of your knowledge, but also the way in which you handle some pretty delicate material. I tried to cover that spread in the intro there, but maybe we can kick this off by having you tell us a little more about your areas of interest and your expertise and how you've come to feel about these troubled times that we're in a bit before we really dive into the details. And when you put it like that, I began to think about the idea of the alleged Chinese curse of may you live in interesting times. But then you also look at, I believe, at the Chinese ideogram of crisis, and it's the idea of the combination of danger and opportunity. Mm. And so more and more, I feel like we are at a heightening time. There's these different ideas about the formats of time, such as chronos is one format of time. But another form of not only time, but of the rhetorical arts is what's called kairos, which is actually about something like improvisation or knowing how to push through in the moment. We're told a lot about the classic rhetorical arts of logos, the idea of psychologically understanding pathos, the idea of understanding feeling the way that emotion works, but then also ethos, which maybe could be described as understanding your cultural context. Mm. So I say all that just to sort of where my current thought is at in terms of this is a moment where things like the improvisational and the deep moral commitments of the rhetorical arts are really necessary. And so some of my background informs that in that I have a background in both combination of production and performance in music. I would like to talk about it as maybe future roots music, so things like reggae music, hip-hop music. And I've also been an educator in that realm and helped to create with good friends and fellow artists in a program called Hip Hop Empowerment that taught different places across the country from southern Vermont to south central LA and Boston, Bronx, and all different ages of people, including kindergartners all the way on up to Broadway actors in their 20s and 30s. So that's some of my background, and I very much in music love the idea of improvisation and the idea of having an ear, of being able to listen, and so not only just in music, but also be able to listen to the political current and be able to respond or understand what's going on. And then I also have a background as an activist and as a permaculturalist in terms of peace activism. I've worked as a uh, peace activist and community organizer, and then I've also done work as a permacultural landscaper in terms of helping design and set up landscapes that are not only can be aesthetically pleasing, but also can nourish not only the soul, but the body in terms of food production. So those are sort of my main streams that bring me to my current context, which does have a major focus in our core political moment, let's call it, and both the threats, the dangers, and the opportunities of our moments. And more and more, 
as we see the rise of this digital world that is increasingly where we spend more and more of our time and attention and the pervasiveness of the rolling out of things like mobile networks of 5G, but then also this idea of the so-called Internet of Things, where all of even the objects in our environment will be tagged with some type of tracking device that can both be communicated with, but also can communicate on its own. And we will increasingly, it looks like we're going to be facing a landscape of digital devices. So then if you go deep into the potential political conundrums that are presented by that, if not things like existential threats, and many people are getting deeper and deeper into studying some of the deep existential threats of our time, including threats of electromagnetic pollution, all the way to things like geoengineering, the idea of human manipulation of weather systems and climates and even soils. But more and more, the I believe that if you look into the realm of what's described in intelligence circles, there's different forms of intelligence, not meaning wisdom intelligence, but like a government intelligence, state intelligence. One of the increasing powers would be called signals intelligence, SIGINT. And then behind a lot of that is a relatively new state player on the modern scene, which would be the self-described Jewish state in Israel, that as a lot of the Israeli people call him, the crime minister, crime minister <laughs> Netanyahu proclaims of his own accord this last APAC of 2018 in the United States of America, I believe, he said that Israel cybersecurity was punching way above its weight. He said, Israeli cybersecurity gets 20% of all of the global contracts, while only while Israel represented, I believe, 1% of the world's population. And he said, we're punching 200 times above our weight. <laughs> that is very strong. And then gave an immediate example about how a company, an Israeli-created company called Mobileye, was bought up by Intel, and then Netanyahu says that Intel not only bought them up for billions of dollars, but then gave them the keys to the self-driving car industries around the world. And so that's just one example of the increasingly significant status of this government in Israel. Mm. Great setup, man. And you really do seem to be walking the walk out there. Some of us sadly don't get off the soapbox all that often. So kudos to you. And let's definitely get into the meat because I'm sure we're all relatively aware of Zionism. We're aware of longstanding histories of Khazarian banking families and even Jewish mysticism makes fairly routine appearances, but it's often at a fairly deep time depth or maybe even spoken about too broadly. And it's this recent history, and especially the cybersecurity stuff that's been a bit off the radar for us. Help us try to get a sense of the modern Zionist network and some of their tactics, taking it back as far as you might want to. Okay, that sounds good. And I do appreciate that in your introduction, you pointed out that I like to call myself a Jewish American patriot of conscience. 
although we shouldn't have to give consideration in terms of talking about core political things, but then being potentially accused of things like anti-Semitism or being against an entire group of people, that is the environment which has been created largely by these exact Jewish power networks mm. that are represented by some of these deeper power strains. And so when I say that I'm a Jewish American patriot of conscience, I am describing my ethno-cultural religious background in terms of growing up as a Jew in Los Angeles, having a bar mitzvah, whatever the ideas of sort of ethnic background of Jewishness are. And I'm very an L.A. boy because I'm also a quarter northern Chihuahuan Mexican, and then also an American, that that's the core of my political beliefs and commitments. And I am a firm believer in the possibilities of the idea of perfecting our union, especially based on the idea of core inherent endowed by your creator, if you believe in one, fundamental rights as best protected and laid out under the Bill of Rights. Okay, that aside, uh, let's go back a little bit. And it is the case that this idea of the Khazarian networks, which in many ways can be considered the idea of Ashkenazi Jews, which is my background, family coming from areas of probably the Pale in Russia, Poland, Lithuania. But then it's interesting, too, that more and more I've seen some investigations that it looks like some of the highest level long-term banking families are actually Sephardic Jews, especially in relationship to the Western world and things like the Astors. Supposedly, their original name was Astorga, and they are Sephardic Jews. So there's this very deep background. And for the really, really deep background, I would point people to a fairly recently translated book called From Yahweh to Zion by a French philosopher, theologian, scholar, Laurent Guyanot, and then translated into English by Dr. Kevin Barrett, who I sometimes co-host False Flag Weekly News with. And that really gives the deep, deep background, even into how the theological component fuses with issues of psychology. But then we move forward, I would say, and where I'm more familiar, I think, with this history is maybe something, let's say, after the United States of America gets going as a country, let's say in the 1800s. In the lead up to the Civil War, there was a Scottish Rite Freemason-associated Jewish lodge created called B'nai B'rith in New York City. So we could call it Judeo-Masonic, I think would be a fair way of talking about it. And I believe it was started in 1843. And some people may recognize now that the Anti-Defamation League, so-called, I call it maybe more the Defamation League mm -hmm. nowadays, that is at the forefront of things like thinking about how to censor the internet. It looks like they have offices set up in a lot of the major tech companies in Silicon Valley. The ADL is the godchild, or just the child of the B'nai B'rith. And the B'nai B'rith, in the lead up to the Civil War, actually had major leaders of its organization in key PowerPoints in the Confederate leadership, including people like Simon Wolf, who actually led the B'nai B'rith, 
for both back then and then even in the early 1900s where he played key roles with Teddy Roosevelt and then also people like Judah Benjamin who was a high level confederate intelligence so there is also some indicators that the Ku Klux Klan was in many ways a birth child of some sort by the Bene Brith and other potential organizations so that's some of the deep background i'd say in terms of subversive intelligence networks inside the United States of America that were way back being used to apparently destabilize what's more destabilizing of course than a civil war <laughs> that's extended and then setting up an organization that will patrol the south such as the Ku Klux Klan and keep things very racially divided and inflamed so there's that background and then i think we can begin to move into the early 1900s when we really begin to see the beginning of the actual operations of zionism come into focus although zionism was started some people say zionism in some ways is an extension of some of the deep ancient jewish yearnings about the messiah and in some ways even when i was young i understood there was something about this idea of wanting to create a state to sort of force god's hand in a certain way because that's actually what some of the prophecy says i believe is that when god says it's time then there will be a return to jerusalem and instead the zionist believe that it was time for them to act as gods and to do what they needed to do including things like subversion and pushing governments into war and staging terrorism in order to force god's hand in a way it could be seen and so into the 1900s you begin to see some of the zionist leaders for example in the united states of america even such people as high level as supreme court justices as louis brandeis and then his mentor and friend felix frankfurter were apparently a part of a group called the padushim which actually translate i believe as like the pharisees and they were a secret zionist society that was working behind the scenes in the early 1900s towards the zionist goal of forming a jewish state in palestine and this history actually came i believe from an israeli historian and then was put more publicly on the record by alison weir whose book against our better judgment actually describes a lot of this history in a very thorough and well documented way and i'm not that well educated in all of the details of this history but there is a lot of indication that such things as a trade off of some sort in relationship to the Rothschilds in England in relationship to the British government and monarchy in terms of the Balfour document and the promising of the Zionist Palestine was there was a quid pro quo of some sort in terms of the Zionist networks promising or asserting that they were going to help bring the United States into World War 1 on the side of the British. And then I one last thing I would point out about that history in terms of the Balfour declaration is that 
even in that declaration, I believe that there's a stipulation that the rights of the indigenous people there, that the British are giving over some area to Jews who desire to move to Palestine to create what they want there, as long as it's done with the full respect for indigenous rights. And so now we see what has been called as the perfidy of the Zionists by Ralph Schoenman. His book is very interesting, too, about this deep history and also goes in eventually to some of the relationships to some of the more maybe Zionist fascist groups in relationship to the German National Socialist government, well into some of their operations. So there's that history. Mm-hmm. And you could go on and on about all of that history. But then you eventually have World War II, and there is a mass movement of Jews out of Europe, and some are taken into other countries in the world. And there's, of course, the death of millions and millions and millions of all kinds of human beings during World War II, mm-hmm. including the death of many, many Jews focused on by the National Socialists shot into pits. And there's that whole history that a lot of people are interested in. And then basically it looks like there was a setup to drive Jews into Palestine. And then the state of Israel is created very soon after World War II. And one thing that I've fairly recently found out that I put on the public record at the Kansas City Public Library at a public event with the former U.S. ambassador to Israel Dennis Ross, is that in the lead-up to President Truman's recognition of Israel, he had actually received mail bombs from what was known as the Stern Gang, Stern Gang, Lehi. And this was the group that was most closely associated with the German National Socialists at the time. And they'd also sent mail bombs to British officials. So more and more, I begin to see things like the idea of that old saying in the mob, do you choose the silver or the lead? Because there's also evidence that's put out by Gore Vidal in his introduction to Israel Shahak's book. I believe it's called Judaism, the 3,000 Years of History. I can't remember, but people can look it up. In the introduction to that book, Gore Vidal says that he heard directly from John Kennedy, I believe, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, that Truman had received a briefcase of money in the run-up to his campaign by a Zionist operative. And Truman also had background with a long-term army friend in Kansas City area called Eddie Jacobson, who was also used by the Zionists and people like uh, Chaim Weitzman to get into Truman's ear about supporting the formation of Israel. Hmm. Wow, man. (laughs) You know, quite a bit. It's very impressive. And these are all really important bullet points to a long and deep history with many, many layers, especially the World War II thing. Yeah, you're quite knowledgeable. Is there anything else to, to state just to get us up to really the main topic today, the Talpiot program? Yes. So the run-up to the formation of Israel involved militants, militias basically, Zionist militias of all different sorts, all pretty darn violent, 
all using violence against the indigenous people, the Palestinians there, including things like attacking villages, poisoning wells. But then there was also the idea of staged bombings. I mentioned the mail bombs, but early on, the Israelis realized that they wanted to be big, big players on the world stage. And in terms of military might, that meant acquiring the nuclear bomb. So very, very early on in its history, Shimon Perez, who was pretty young at that point, he eventually became prime minister, he helped set up the Israeli nuclear program and then stewarded it through decades and decades and decades, including in taking on one of his key operatives known as Arnon Milchan, who is best known as a Hollywood film producer who's produced things like Fight Club, Pretty Woman, but then also the film by Oliver Stone, JFK, about the assassination of JFK. And so as I put it to a group of Leavenworth-associated veterans at the Kansas City Public Library, it should be noted that the film to see on the JFK assassination conspiracy was essentially produced by Israeli nuclear intelligence. Mm -hmm. And the actual name of that intelligence group that Shimon Peres worked for was called Lekem or Lakam. And in many ways, it represents the origins of the Talpiot program in that it was actually called the Bureau of Scientific Research or Bureau of Scientific Relations, actually. And what it really was, was industrial technological weaponry espionage globally, with a strong emphasis on the United States and getting nuclear materials out of the United States. And the highest levels of Israeli intelligence, including people like Rafi Aitan, interfaced with the highest levels of U.S. counterintelligence in the figure of James Jesus Angleton, who also sits at the epicenter of the Kennedy assassination, and people can go look at Michael Collins Piper's book, Final Judgment, about all of the context around that. But they interfaced in order for Rafi Aitan to smuggle nuclear materials out of the country from the NUMEC plant that was set up in Pennsylvania. And Angleton basically looked the other way, as he did through a series of apparently Israeli-involved terrorist actions, military actions, including things like the assassinations of the 60s. Kennedy is the most blaring one. JFK is the most blaring one. But there are also indications that Zionist interests were potentially involved in things like his brother's assassination. People can go look at the owners of the hotel where Bobby Kennedy was killed, tied into the Crown family, a leading Zionist military industrial complex family, basically some of the key figures in general dynamics. And they also are pretty much tied into Israel also. But even questions about the ADL spying on people like Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X continued onwards. But then things progressed and Angleton would look the other way also for things like the USS Liberty attack where he was in the perfect spot for the liberty to be in the precise place. And many interpretations that I believe are the most accurate about the USS Liberty attack, where Israel attacked really a U.S. NSA vessel, a signals intelligence vessel, and tried to sink it and basically kill everybody. 
And there is word that President Lyndon Johnson said, I want that thing to the bottom. And even some of the Israeli soldiers did not want to do it and were told by their highest level of command to try to take down the ship. And Angleton was right there for all of that, seems to have a key role in all of that. That's described in the book, The Ghost, The Secret Life of CIA Spymaster James Jesus Angleton by Jefferson Morley that goes into a lot of this history. But then Rafi Aitan, who was the key to things like smuggling out nuclear materials into Israel from the United States of America, also then played the key role as signals technology and cyber technology begin to come into focus and the rise of the computer era and into the 80s by playing a key role in smuggling out and then also putting an Israeli Trojan horse back door on what was known as Promise Software, P-R-O-M-I-S. And there is a very interesting history of this in the book Robert Maxwell, Israel's Super Spy by Gordon Thomas and Martin Dillon. And the Promise software in many ways, some people say that it is the origins of things like the PRISM program that was disclosed in the Snowden leaks that basically were able to track an individual's entire trace of digital data, of records, and Promise basically came from an American company that was created for prosecutors to be able to look for and analyze and organize evidence in terms of making criminal cases. But Rafi Aitan, who had helped solidify the Israeli nuclear program, he decided to go and get it and did cloak and dagger operations and brought it out with the help of Robert Maxwell. Robert Maxwell is a key figure who brings us forward to the present too, because Robert Maxwell is the father of Ghislaine Maxwell, who is the key sidekick and apparent procurer of girls for one Jeffrey Epstein, Hmm. who, if we look at both the main presidential candidates for 2016, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, they both had intimate and deep, long-standing relationships with one Jeffrey Epstein. So we can put that aside for now, Hmm. but Robert Maxwell is a key figure in all of this because in a certain way, he's the precursor to someone like Rupert Murdoch, who in many ways can be seen, I believe, as a global Zionist operative. He, I think, was the first foreigner to be allowed to by a major U.S. media company, and things have only gone downhill since that, uh, (laughs) if you look into the entire Fox News network. Right. But promise does represent, in many ways, the origins of things like the our modern surveillance state. And at the very same time, there was a program called the Talpiot Program, that in the wake of the 1973 Yom Kippur War, where Israel suffered what they thought were heavy losses and losses that they didn't ever want to suffer again, some interested members of their military community interfaced with some psychologists and proposed a program to make sure that Israel would be on the leading edge of technological development 
from then onwards. Because the background of the Israeli, let's say, signals intelligence network or organization, which is known as Unit 8200, it's a unit within the larger Israeli so-called defense forces, their army, and it is the counterpart to the U.S. NSA. It was actually created by using old U.S. technology back in the 50s. And so I believe that in the 70s, in the wake of the Yom Kippur War losses, they were like, we're going to be our own technology powerhouse and not have to depend on our patron in the United States of America. Mm. Wow, man. <laughs> just so impressive. And history is just buried in espionage, narrative control, psyops. So it really can be hard to parse, but you're killing it. And the resources are much appreciated. I have a lot of follow-up reading to do for sure. And I like what you noted about Rupert Murdoch and Fox News. I've also heard you say that Russia Today is even broadcasted from an Israeli satellite. So playing both sides, that classic geopolitical chess move is definitely in play. And you gave us some great context about the Talpiot program. I wanted to just read this because it was a pretty good summary. It touches on some things you've already mentioned, but it really says a lot where I believe these are your words. Uh, you write, well, you call it the world's worst global security breach. To quote the summary, the Talpiot program, a long-term Israeli military intelligence strategic initiative to give the Israeli war state a permanent technological edge, was rolled out in 1979. Coincidentally or not, this was the same year the modern war on terror had its public policy birth in the infamous 1979 Jerusalem Conference on International Terrorism. While the security and intelligence results of Talpiot heightened the effectiveness of Unit 8200, the deep state corporatist economic impact only got supercharged in the wake of the 9-11 false flag. Now we face Crime Minister Netanyahu's claims for a next generation Samson operation of kill switch diplomacy powered by Talpiot to hold the world's databases, hardware backdoors, and critical infrastructure hostage. And man, that pretty much says it all, but God, I guess it's a bit scary just how successful this plan seems to have been, right? Yes, and that quote that you originally read about how this potentially represents the greatest security breach in history actually comes from an activist and analyst named Brendan O'Connell, who comes from Australia, who basically was the lone voice in the wilderness for many, many years trying to draw attention to this issue of the long-term military intelligence strategic operation of the Talpiot program and what it implied in terms of this greatest security breach of history. And so people can go follow up by looking at his YouTube channel and also some of his documents that he put on the record when he was in the middle of a legal case in Australia at Isolate But Preserve is his website. And I believe he's very likely correct in that this is the greatest security breach in human history. And I appreciate you reading my description of it because that does break it down in many ways. And because what we're talking about is not only a national security breach, because more and more we can understand the way that the Israeli state actually acts in some ways as a global cut out breach 
for a certain grouping of global organized crime that's tied into things like the highest levels of financial networks, as we most obviously know with things like the Rothschilds and the idea of weaponized interest-based global banking. The state of Israel, actually, over time, we see more and more that it has used its moles deep within the highest levels of the U.S. national security apparatus. And in the White House, there's lots of scandals around that. There's also APAC, which has basically been recognized as not only a lobbying organization, and people should go look at the recently released Al Jazeera documentary that was forced to be sat upon for more than a year, I believe, called The Lobby, that's all about the so-called Israel lobby, that really shows itself to be a foreign military intelligence operation that targets activists of good faith and working to promote the human rights of people like the Palestinians, and operating directly out of a ministry, a foreign ministry in Israel called Strategic Affairs. And in the midst of that, if we begin to read this network of the deep penetration of the U.S. national security apparatus, and that would include things like not only the funneling out of nuclear materials out of NUMEC by people like Rafi Aitan, but then Rafi Aitan had worked via his agent in place, then Senator John Tower, a Republican from Texas who helped lead the way of the so-called Iran-Contra investigation into getting this Israeli backdoored compromise promise software into Sandia National Weapons Laboratory, which is at the epicenter of the U.S. nuclear weapons program in general. So if we see this kind of deep penetration, both politically and in terms of national security, we then have to look at where is this technology actually going? It's definitely going to Israel. It's definitely going into what's now called the Silicon Wadi, which is the Israeli counterpart to Silicon Valley. And more and more of the biggest tech companies are rapidly increasing their presence and their investment in the Silicon Wadi. For many, many years, even things like chip makers like Intel not only have fabrication plants in Israel, and these are not replete throughout the world, these chip fabrication plants. But they actually design chips there. And then even things like Qualcomm, which is, I believe, is started in its headquarters are in supposedly in San Diego. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But one of its co-founders, right, and I believe that Qualcomm creates the Snapdragon chip key to a lot of Samsung phones and a lot of non-Apple iPhones. And the co-founder of Qualcomm has been deeply interested and invested in Israel for many, many years. And recently, he and his wife have donated, I believe, $130 million for a campus that is being set up in Manhattan, as facilitated by Michael Bloomberg, as a joint effort between the Technion, which is at the epicenter of the Israeli research complex, very tied into their weapons complex, very old, actually over 100 years old, and is at the epicenter, along with the Hebrew University Weizmann Institute and the Bar-Lan University, at the epicenter of the Talpiot program. And they're setting up a campus in lower Manhattan with Cornell University. And the co-founder of Qualcomm has donated over $100 million for a very specific institute to be 
set up there. So this is just replete over and over and over again. We see the biggest tech companies, not only the chip fabricators, but also the social media companies. Facebook has a major Israeli office. Google has major Israeli setup. And more and more, we begin to see that this is actually a security breach of major proportions if we just think about it from a U.S.-centric perspective. Because as you hinted at earlier, there is this question, especially in sort of contradiction to much of the way that what we might call the truth community or the alternative media community has been sold over the years, that things like Russia Today or the BRICS alliance of nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, are potentially some pushback, not only to the US empire, but also to Israel. And like you pointed out, we've talked about how at some point, Russia today changed satellite companies and went directly to an Israeli satellite company. But even more directly, we're seeing more and more direct connection and amplification of the strategic military and technology relationship between Israel and Russia, Israel and China. And this is all backed up by the history of things like the Jonathan Pollard spy scandal, which was probably the biggest Israeli spy scandal of history, which was also helped set up by Rafi Itan, I believe. And this was a key thing to understand about how that worked, because Jonathan Pollard, let me push back a little bit. It's become very clear in terms of in during the Trump years that intelligence professionals are telling us that the way that you compromise somebody is via, it's called the MICE acronym, right? Money, ideology, compromise, I believe. And that can be either sexual compromise of some sort, things like Jeffrey Epstein and cameras set up all throughout his mansions in Florida and his brownstone in Manhattan, but then also potentially things like political or financial compromise. And then E, mice, ego, the playing to someone's narcissism. So with someone like Jonathan Pollard, a young Jewish guy who would tell stories about how he was Israeli intelligence when he was in college, he was basically set up and was driven, it looks like, by a combination of ego money, and then potentially some ideology in relationship to Zionism and Israel. And he made his way into naval intelligence and then was set up by a whole crew of people. And we got to remember that this is in the mid-80s. In the mid-80s, one Benjamin Netanyahu was actually the representative of Israel to the UN, which I believe is also when he really got close to one Donald Trump and his father, Fred Trump, as Netanyahu was spending tons of time in New York City at that time. So go look at that history. But putting that aside, Netanyahu, along with Rafi Aitan, along with the people involved with the Talpiot program, and along with the high-level Israeli Air Force Colonel Avicella, helped handle Jonathan Pollard and direct him towards very specific documents, tons of them. Basically, we fill up a room, the amount of documents that Jonathan Pollard excavated from out of the bowels of the U.S. national security complex and directly into the highest levels of the Israeli government. But then also, it turned out that there were very specific documents that didn't mean 
as much to the Israelis as they did to the then Soviets. And it looks like there was a potential quid pro quo agreement at some point between the Israelis and the then Soviets to do a trade, basically, of this high-level stolen U.S. national security material for Soviet Jews. And more and more, there is a history that's becoming obvious to me that even people like Robert Maxwell in the book Israel Super Spy, it talks about Robert Maxwell was not only a long-term spy for the Israelis, who were then alleged to have taken him out when he became too financially compromised and was looting his own company's funds and his employees' funds and everything, and was then trying to extort people, including the Mossad potentially. But Robert Maxwell was also a high-level interfacing with the KGB and people like Kryuchkov, that's K-R-Y-U-C-H-K-O-V, who was the mentee of Yuri Andropov, basically the long-term master of the Soviet state, including intelligence. And right around the time of Robert Maxwell's death, after he'd done all of this stuff for the Israeli intelligence community, including the grabbing and marketing and helping in the backdooring of the promised software and selling it to dozens and dozens and dozens of countries around the world, giving Israel backdoor access to key materials all around the world. He also was then into a potential conspiracy to commit a coup against then Mikhail Gorbachev to overthrow Gorbachev with these highest level coup plotters in the Soviet Union at the time. And that the payoff for Israel in terms of Robert Maxwell and his Israeli agent was that the Soviets were then going to promise to what they called expel the Jews so that there would be such a massive glut of Jewish immigrants and the global community that they would then be forced to go to Israel. And so we see this more and more that there's this population transfer agreement between Israel and the now Russian state, and more and more the high-technology sector in Israel is populated by Russians, and some of them are not even necessarily Jewish, because as we saw the rise of Russian organized crime, the Israelis also grabbed it as an opportunity and began to offer passports basically to anybody who could sort of say or hint that they had a Jewish grandmother. Mm -hmm. And so at some point, the highest levels of the U.S. National Security Counterintelligence Establishment recognized that basically every single high-level Russian organized criminal in the entire world had an Israeli passport also. Many of them were Jewish, but not all of them. Man, I'm just kind of in awe of the effectiveness. You kind of got to respect just all these mind-blowing operations and how long they've been in place. I mean, controlling the world by controlling the technology that controls the infrastructure is just so smart. I mean, it's unfortunate that it seems like all over the globe, nations have been Trojan horsed in a sense with these kill switches. And I've heard you talk about the mega group and they apparently are Jewish billionaires. I think this is where the Epstein connection might tie in. Even Nexum cult connections might tie in. And maybe some of the players you've mentioned are involved with this, but 
how do we know about the mega group and who are they? That's a good question. And the mega group definitely does tie into Jeffrey Epstein. The mega group, I'll give all the different perspectives of what mega is. This code word mega came on the public scene during the second Clinton administration, right around the time that uh, Clinton was beginning to be caught up in the Monica Lewinsky scandal. And there's a whole backstory there in terms of certain timing and certain kinds of handlers and relationships. I believe it was even Netanyahu who showed up at the very same moment that this scandal begins to erupt. So there are a lot of questions about the nature of that Lewinsky scandal and whether it was a weaponized scandal against Clinton via aspects of the hard aspects of the Israeli security community. And it does look like that. But it was being reported that the NSA had intercepted Israeli intelligence, local Israeli intelligence, I believe the Mossad chief in DC, talking about, we don't use mega for that. And it was in response to something regarding trying to get a copy of the document of then, I believe, Secretary of State Warren Christopher's agreements or negotiations with the Palestinians at the time. And in response, the DC head of Mossad said, we don't use mega for that. And so there was a certain amount of rush, a quick move within the US counterintelligence set, including a CIA counterintelligence team that was sent to Israel to immediately begin investigating it. And there were certain people that believed that they thought it was a specific individual who was a mole, a high-level mole in the White House, potentially. And there were a lot of interesting candidates for that that included people like Martin Indyk, who was of Australian origin, who had worked then after he left the highest levels of the Australian Foreign Service government potentially because of suspicion of spying for Israel. He went directly to Israel to work for people like Netanyahu, I believe. And then he's on a hiatus for six months and goes to the U.S. and then just very quickly makes his way via people like Dennis Ross and the APAC and Washington Institute for Near East Policy spinoff groups and makes his way deep into the White House. So he was a potential suspect People like even Richard Clark, who I would actually ask people to look at what I call the of 9-11. There's a troika of dicks surrounding 9-11. You have a Dick Cheney, you have a Dick Pearl, Richard Pearl, and a Dick Richard Clark. All these people, including Pearl and Clark, had been caught doing things that were clearly related to helping Israeli intelligence for years and years back. So there was a lot of potential individual suspects of what the mega mole was. But then I believe the next year, the Washington Post had reported some of this about the mega thing. But then I believe it was the next year, it came out in the Wall Street Journal about the Bronfmans, specifically Edgar and Charles Bronfman, along with people like Les Wexner, who's an Ohio Jewish Zionist billionaire who helped start Limited, the clothing company who by the way, it should be pointed out, over many, many years, corporately did things such as sexualizing the youth in terms of their marketing mm. and advertising and all of that. And so then when we see how Wexner 
it was actually the patron Les Wexner was the patron for one Jeffrey Epstein. And you can find this kind of reporting by people like Bob Fatrakis at the Free Press, who wrote an article called The Wexner War in August 1st of 2003 that really talks about the combination of Wexner's facilitation of Epstein. I believe it's in that article and talks about how referencing an architectural digest uh, article about how there was all these closed circuit cameras in Epstein's townhouse or brownstone in Manhattan and that it had come from Wexner, maybe pre-wired potentially. Hmm. So the mega group main players were the Bronfmans who are Canadian Jewish Zionist billionaires involved in things like Seagram, Viacom. So the combination of alcohol, they come from sort of like bootleggers. And there's even a deep background there in relationship to the Kennedy assassination that you can find in Michael Collins Piper's book, Final Judgment, has a lot of the indicators about this connection from New Orleans up to Montreal that even has some tie-ins with people who were associated with the King assassination, such as a mysterious guy named Raoul. But then the third main figure in this mega group that was reported on by the Wall Street Journal as basically a small group of heavy-hitting Jewish Zionist billionaires who were going to, very as subtly as they could, in the words of some of the Bronfman's, Edgar Bronfman said, he, we want to make it cool to be a Jew. And then Charles Bronfman, I believe, said, well, we don't want to be seen as doing anything you know, bad, or we don't want to be seen as the Sanhedrin, this sort of group of the Jewish elders or something like that. The third person deeply involved there was a Michael Steinhardt, who is the current dean of the Birthright Israel program, which has to do with basically inculcating American Jews mainly into uh, Israel culture. And there's actually some very interesting recent investigations into the sort of weaponized culture around that and what young American Jewish girls face when they are brought into Israel by this birthright Israel program. But Steinhardt had a background on Wall Street but also people should go look at the background of his father and then potential ties into things like organized crime networks of people like Meyer Lansky, who is a key figure in all of this with many, many ties to Israeli intelligence over the years and also at the epicenter of the underworld mob part of things like the Kennedy assassinations. And I just want to point out that you hear a lot about this term, the deep state. Mm-hmm. I believe it's been sort of misunderstood, maybe purposefully mischaracterized, especially during the Trump year so far, where it's basically painted as it's people in the Obama administration. But really, if you look at the deep definition of the deep state coming from people like the professor Peter Dale Scott, he describes it as the merger or the meeting of the national security state and then the black economy, the underworld, the mobbed up organized crime networks. Mm -hmm. And that's where you begin to really see these Zionist networks increasingly come into the fold, and with an increasing emphasis in the more recent years on the Russian 
organized crime syndicates that are also heavily Jewish and very, very Zionist. Hmm. Yes, it's a very tangled web too. Very complex, a lot of espionage and counterespionage and infiltration. And that was going to be my next question was to try to uh, loop Trump into this whole thing because so many people have so many opinions and a lot of people do feel as if Trump marks some sort of changing of the guard, which might be true to some extent because the global American empire program that I've seen my whole life seems to be fizzling out a bit. Maybe the returns aren't there like they used to be, but then we still have Jared Kushner in the mix. So the influence might be hitting pretty close to home within that circle. I guess, what are your overall thoughts on who holds Trump's puppet strings? Is it Russia? Is it the Zionists? Is it the deep state white hats, as some would say? I mean, what do you think? What are the ties that really bind the most important puppet strings on this administration? Well, as most of history, I don't think it's simple necessarily. Right. Or simplistic, but it does look like there was a big con op. And by the way, the idea of a con op is a term that I've come up with, which is a shortening of a specific psychological warfare division inside of the Israeli Defense Forces called consciousness operations. Ah. So I do think there is a large part, at the very least, of the way that Donald Trump was marketed to us, especially to people who see themselves as outside of the box, as countercultural or in the truth movement, that was very much utilize this idea of him as an outsider, portraying him as an outsider. And he, of course, was and is somewhat of a political outsider. Obviously, he doesn't know that much about government. He hasn't ever really spent much time in D.C. He hasn't been in the government. But at the other sense of it, he's also very much a long-term insider of the actual epicenter of the deep state, if you think about the idea of his background in terms of lower Manhattan, real estate. And you can really begin to see these networks by looking at the people who mentored him, people like Roy Cohn, who was, it was basically a, a well-recognized mob lawyer for many, many decades, along with having been a key sidekick to Senator Joe McCarthy. And some people believe that potentially he actually played a role of controversializing or leading the investigation into actual Soviet spy rings that would have been high level. You could look at things like Silver Master spy ring, but on into the present moment, a lot of these actual nests, not moles, but nests of spies were never actually rooted out. And instead, McCarthy, as guided by his sidekick, Roy Cohn, the Jewish Zionist lawyer, increasingly targeted people who were directors or artists or political organizers, rather than actually looking at the highest levels of potential high-level military intelligence Soviet penetration. So I think you can look way back to the history of Donald Trump as Roy Cohn's boy and really see that Donald Trump is a made man of this syndicate. And Roy Cohn also has been said by one James Rothstein, actually, I believe, who is a famed New York police detective, 
to have been involved surrounding things like Trump properties. And Rossi never directly has implicated Donald Trump, but he has implicated Roy Cohn, who he says directly confessed to him that Roy Cohn was involved in things like underage sex compromise operations. And Roy Cohn pitched it like he was doing it to compromise the communists or something like that. But as we've seen that these kind of things have not been rooted out, they've only escalated in many ways. You can see it most blatantly with the current Jeffrey Epstein situation. And many people like to point out that Jeffrey Epstein has a deep relationship with the Clintons, and that is definitely true. In some ways, people call him the origins of the Clinton Foundation. He definitely gave them a lot of money. You see both the Bill and Hillary involved with him, Bill on the Lolita Express, Jeffrey Epstein's private plane. But you also see the background that's been largely poo-pooed in large portions of the alternative media, most obviously with people like Alex Jones, that Trump had barely even knew Jeffrey Epstein, that he, in by way of one Roger Stone, we are told on InfoWars Airwaves that Donald Trump just went into one party of Jeffrey Epstein's down in Florida, saw a lot of young girls hanging out by the pool, and then got out of there very, very quickly. But that's not really the case. It's fairly mainstream knowledge that even in a mainstream book like Michael Wolff's Fire and Fury, early on in the book, it refers to a mainstream news article that talks about how Thomas Barack, who's a key Republican financer and backer of Donald Trump, Donald Trump and Jeffrey Epstein were longtime close, close friends in Manhattan running around way back through the 90s. And there is even some evidence of people can go look at the journalism of Wayne Madsen about investigating a case that was put forth during 2016 by a woman who was calling herself Katie Johnson, who alleged she and other girls, but specifically a girl named Maria from Waterbury, Connecticut, had been violently assaulted and raped by Jeffrey Epstein and Donald Trump back in the early 90s. And this was made to go away very, very quickly. The mainstream media didn't touch it at all. And right as there was about to be a press conference with the woman making the allegations, it was canceled. And she said that she had received threats to her and to her family. And part of her allegations was that even after her alleged rape, she was directly threatened to stay quiet about that. So I think that there is a lot of evidence that counter to Alex Jones recently proclaiming that there's no one in the entire high-level establishment as clean as Donald Trump. I believe mm -hmm. there's a lot of evidence that Donald Trump is not only a made man, but probably a deeply disturbed and dirtied up man, if you want to call him that, in terms of, as we've already seen publicly, the way that he treats people of the female persuasion. Mm. But beyond that, it is the case that it does look like there was some other set that was behind Donald Trump that was different than what we had seen over many, many years. But what I would say is that it looks like that Donald Trump was the first largely owned president of Israel. That's what it looks like. Really? 
Yeah, that's what it looks like. I mean, there is definitely also a Russia connection. But if you deal with the Jeffrey Epstein thing, then you could also potentially see that maybe Hillary Clinton was equally compromised so that the Netanyahu government was going to be equally happy with whatever one of their <laughs> controlled choices so-called won. Mm -hmm. But you see there, Donald Trump was the only candidate in 2016 who had made a direct video for Netanyahu's candidacy. Greg McCarran and I on The Antidote during a show called Finky and the Kids that describes a key figure in all of this in terms of the early Donald Trump campaign and its connections potentially to certain European areas, including in Hungary, but then on into Russia is Arthur Finkelstein, who was the guy who helped Brandon Netanyahu's campaign that got him into the government. He was a key, key figure in all of this. And in that show, Finky and the Kids, we talk about how there was a release of a list that Netanyahu had in his own handwriting of all the billionaires that he was going to be seeking money from. And there's a lot of people on there that people should go look at that includes things like former Soviet sphere aspects of organized crime that apparently were deeply involved in Donald Trump's real estate ventures for many, many years, if not decades. People like Tamir Sapir, people should go look at the Bayrock group of Felix Sater that Sapir was also part of. But the only guy on the entire list that we believe is not Jewish is Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. So Netanyahu has a deep and long-term relationship. We know, of course, of the deep relationship of Jared Kushner and his father, Charles Kushner, in relationship to Netanyahu. And then, as I pointed out before, I think there's a deep, deep story about what was the relationship of Netanyahu in the 1980s with Donald Trump and his father, Fred Trump, in Manhattan. Man. Wow. Deep, deep stuff and great analysis of Trump. I definitely saw it as kind of the same outsider game that was played with Obama, just of a different flavor. It was interesting, definitely unusual to see a viable candidate mention 9-11, talk about locking up people like Hillary Clinton, asking questions about vaccines. But at the end of the day, I fundamentally just don't trust the integrity of national elections. So I just felt the true masters wanted this, but I was still a little unclear on why and exact everybody has an opinion on who's really in charge everyone thinks it's russia we already talked about the infiltration of russia from the israeli state so the label might be kind of arbitrary in terms of who's really in control if you're looking at it from that perspective but man as we're kind of getting to uh, the end of the road here on conspiratorial shows like this we're often talking about these big overarching agendas. And this is all really important to know, but it is so epic that it seems quite a bit outside of the realm of what we can control individually. But this maybe gets us into some of your solutions-based work. I actually love that you loop in permaculture, and maybe before we apply it to politics, this is another area where individuals can sort of take back some of their autonomy when it comes to providing crucial resources for ourselves and our families rather than maintaining these patches of grass. But give us some of your introductory techniques or information that you think might be helpful for tackling this hole in our game 
And then, of course, maybe round it out by applying it to politics and some of the principles that we have at our disposal, some of the tools that we maybe have overlooked despite the corruption within the political process. So we can kind of go out on a positive note (laughs) as much as we can. Yes, because again, as we opened up with, we can't get away from the time of crisis and the time of danger. But there is also a time of opportunity, and it is in these difficult times where we figure out what is it about our humanness that we really value? Why do we want to preserve our own lives? Why do we want to preserve the lives of our children and our descendants? And what is it that our ancestors were made of that got us here? Mm -hmm. And that is a deep, deep thing to be grateful for. And I think if we begin to work into what's put forth in terms of permaculture, you see permaculture, it's Australian contraction for permanent agriculture, <laughs> you know, and some people also say it's permanent culture. And I, I think permanent maybe is too much because nothing is permanent. Everything in physical form is going to go away, even the sun. And maybe there are spiritual principles and things like love and if you believe in God, that things that are beyond time. But we are interested right now at a time when there's a massive disintegration, dissolution of structures. And some of the dissolution we probably seek in the form of things like composting violent intent and violent structures that have led to the looting and plundering of humanity and the world's natural environment, some of that stuff we probably seek the dissolution of. And I think the image in our mind is the idea of the compost pile, which in many ways, the idea of permaculture, they say it starts in the garden, but it doesn't end in the garden. Mm -hmm. And I would say before you even start in the garden, you start with the compost pile. (laughs) Because the lessons of the cycles and the recycling and the rebirth of life out of the old structure is most evident, not necessarily first in the garden, although ultimately must get to the garden and to see the nourishment for the reason of growing up your food and your sustenance. But this idea of the compost also uses heat. So in the midst of the heat is a time and place where we can begin to compost forms that we are done with or intent that we are done with. But in a more literal fashion, permaculture in many ways represents the synergy, the combining of these ancient traditions that our ancestors had, which enabled them to culture an environment of food in relationship to the natural environment in a way that not only didn't deplete the topsoil, let's say, but actually enriched it. And people can go look into things like terra preta, the black deep soil down in the Amazon. For a while, people ran into it. In some places, this is this highly fertile soil that in some cases is feet deep. You know, Whereas in modern US, in the midst of the former rangelands here in the Midwest, and we live in Kansas here, we're talking about inches of topsoil that we're trying to hang on to and depleted carbon composition of the soil and mineralization that Congress was looking into over 100 years ago. 
But down in the Amazon is the terra preta, the black soil. And it also looks to be rejuvenating. Not only is it abundant in its current form, but it seems to rejuvenate itself. And for a while, people thought that it was some strange natural phenomena about what happened in the Amazon and fire. And we'll put aside the questions of some people actually theorize in an interesting fashion that the Amazon itself is a permaculture landscape or a human cultivated landscape. And I love that idea. Yes, yes. And it's very possible. But then people found the evidence that this soil, this black soil, was actually fully human created in conjunction with the indigenous soil via the usage of fire in containers, in clay containers of things like waste, you know, food waste, human waste, all that kind of thing was then burned in low oxygen scenarios. And what you get is what is now called biochar which is basically an organic food-grade charcoal to be put into your soil that you can create that creates the perfect place to retain water, nutrients, and biology in terms of the biological organisms that really make soil alive. And so I think that's a great lesson. I've played with that in our own yard. The first summer that I played with it, I juiced it. You got to charge it. And you can charge it with diluted aspects of your urine, which, of course, remember the cycles. The urine is one of the best forms of nitrogen. Now, it needs to be handled correctly. It needs to be diluted. And, you know, everyone can figure out how that best works. But I, I figured out how to charge this biochar with a combination of, you know, a nitrogen fertilizer uh, that I had good source for from my own body. And then also <laughs> the microbes. And then also the minerals, the minerals that we need to make not only the plants vibrant, our food plants vibrant, but then those actually become the food tonic for our own bodies. And they deliver the minerals in the most accessible way possible beyond the pills is highly microbialized, mineralized food. And then in a very dry Kansas summer, I basically soaked it and planted it into the root zone of tomato plants. And during a dry summer, never had to water them again. And they just sort of caught the little bit of rain and held it and the biochar helped deliver it to the root zone. So I think that's one specific example of things that are available that we can figure out how to utilize right now to bring some vibrance back to our food and our yards. And, you know, I, I, my own life, there's a dynamic like the recent years, I've tended back towards this more intensely focused political, and I've drifted a little bit from my intent and focus on permaculture. But this is why also I believe that I think it's best probably to maintain a strong connection to your yard and garden in maybe ways that I have not yet so far. But even in the dynamic of sort of on-again, off-again approaches to things like gardening and composting and permaculture and stuff like that, I can see that the idea of the holistic intelligence and understanding of something like permaculture can give us not only hope, because until I actually found out about permaculture, I just had an inkling that there was actually design solutions to basically all of our so-called environmental industrial problems. And a lot of them started in the garden, but they didn't stop in the garden. But then also this idea of scaling up up and out of the garden, the concepts and the learnings of permaculture. And permaculture starts with talking about 
a visible domain and an invisible domain where the visible yeah. domain is everything like home technology, food, shelter, electricity, all that. Thing. But then the invisible domain is things like spirituality, law, education, health, wellness, language even. So I think that we can begin to look into the idea of permaculture where David Holmgren proposes the idea that permaculture is based on top-down thought, meaning holistic design patterns, but then bottom-up action. So I'm highly interested in the possibility of scaling up holistic political thinking that maybe we could call out of the radical middle, radical to the root, not reactionary, not extremist, and then middle, meaning everything, everyone in between the extremes, including the extremes, the radical middle to hold together this deep, deep dynamic that we, not only as Americans, but we as human beings, have deep within our genetics and deep within our cultural legacy to be able to talk about our problems, confront them, analyze them, and then act upon them with deep solutions that can be scaled up. So just final point is I do think that there is hope for political action that goes beyond just doing permaculture in our own yard and in our neighborhood but that should start there. And then we can scale it up. And I believe that a lot of the focus should be things like what we're doing right now. It can't stop with talking, but it starts with talking and the idea of the assembly. And that's a rich American tradition, town hall assembly, whether to New England, but then it also goes to things like the Iroquois circles of wisdom and all human cultures have this idea of gathering the people together to talk to each other, and everyone has some piece of insight or information, or even if it's just a problem that other people are confronting, to bring that to people's attention. So I would put in a plug for the idea of reassembling and looking to create basically a parallel democratic structure to our elections while also being involved in unrigging those and figuring out how to politically organize in a transpartisan fashion, but to also organize a parallel direct democratic structure that's not about trying to pass laws, but that's about assembling the people together as small as the home, the neighborhood, the town, but then on up into things like the state and the country. Amongst that, then we can then have a global reasoning that respects the dignity and the rights of every single individual, and not only respects them, but seeks their input so that we can actually get towards something that looks like the synergistic intelligence of all human wisdom. So that is some of the generalized scope of some of my hope for our moment. And I hope that we can work to make it actual. <laughs> All right. Good job, man. I mean, geez, the importance of assembly. You're right. This is an era where we can't even look a cashier in the eye anymore. We definitely need to get back to talking to each other. And I love that you opened up that permaculture can of worms. Hopefully sometime you can come back and we'll have to have some real fun talking about the prospect of engineering the Amazon in the ancient past. I know you mentioned Lockheed Martin. I've heard you talk about Catherine Austin Fitz. Maybe we can throw in the deep corporate funding, the ufology secret tech threads that definitely exist out there. 
But man, it has been such a pleasure. I learned a hell of a lot and I really appreciate your time. Really impressed with your scope of knowledge. And I don't know why exactly I've had such bad luck in getting a guest to come on and talk about these things like Zionism and the Talpiot program. Maybe they're turned off by what they see in previous episodes or just the silly name, the higher side chats, but I appreciate your open-mindedness and willing to take that chance. Before I really cut you loose, please give the people the information about what you got going on, where to find you, social media stuff, if you're working with that beast, and just how to further scratch that Jeremy Roth Kushel itch. Thank you so much, Greg, for having me on and having such conversations of intent. And I think that's really, really important. People can find me on Twitter, Jeremy WRK. I do a weekly podcast called The Antidote Radio that you can find on Patreon, No Lies Radio, and YouTube with my co-host, Greg McCarran. I also sometimes co-host the False Flag Weekly News program with Dr. Kevin Barrett and others. And yeah, people should just go seek out all of the sources about Talpiad and go look at Brendan O'Connell's work and Joseph Davis's work at securing our interest. And till we meet next time, Greg, thank you so much. You got it. Beautiful. I am all jazzed up to release this one. I'm sure it's going to be well-received. Couldn't have done it without you, of course. So keep up the good work out there and take care. All right. Thank you so much. Man, oh man, people, what a show. So chock full of information, maybe overdue information if you ask some folks, but hey, you can't please everybody all the time. Although I have seen a little bit of this show should be called the Zion Side Chats hosted by Greg Carl Markswood and that kind of thing. And there is certainly a special kind of guy who won't be happy unless it's all Jewish elite all the time. And yeah, I think it's a big piece of the puzzle, clearly, as we talked about today, but it's not the only game in town. And if you've been with THC for a while, I think we've talked about Zionism and Kazarian banking families a great deal in the past and explored some pretty radical positions with previous guests when it comes to those sorts of topics. But I could understand someone who's only heard the past maybe year of shows feeling as if there was some kind of dare not go here kind of thing in play. But the reality is just that the banking cabal conversation has been had many times. The World War II conversation has been had a couple of times. And I consider some of that material to be in the course syllabus for Conspiracy 101. And if I have to keep going back to Conspiracy 101 or be considered a shill of some kind, then we never get to the more complex or further out stuff and to me, this was a perfect way to get back into this particular power center. One, because we have a great guest who is Jewish, so we can get past any sort of anti-Semitic claims right off the bat. It's weird to have to always say that, but we do. Two, it's fresh material that looks to the present and the future rather than looking at how some of these bankers centralized power and played both sides of every war throughout history. Yeah, that's important historical context, but like most of my history classes in high school and college, you never get to the recent and relevant stuff if you always have to go back and start the story at year one. And thirdly, just Jeremy's level of expertise here. 
He's not throwing around wild claims and broad speculations. He's got some pretty detailed analysis here, and it's going to require a ton of follow-up from me. Lots of great names were mentioned to look into for potential guests in the future to keep this thread alive. And man, some of those Netanyahu quotes are so interesting, so telling, really, basically referencing this long game to control the technical infrastructure of everything, keeping their finger on the button. I mean, this really is fascinating stuff to me. So my mind is pretty blown. But then we have this icing on the higher side cake in that Jeremy also has this vast knowledge of permaculture. And so we got to loop that in as well. All of that stuff combined makes me really pleased with this one. And I'm lucky to have found Jeremy and happy that he trusted me to set him up well and present him fairly. Obviously, people in this particular realm can be very sensitive about being ambushed or misrepresented because it is touchy. And if you appreciated his appearance, please let him know with some sort of digital high five or fist bump or something. Let him know he was well received. And there were several things we left on the table, you know, the way I initially heard about the Telpiat program was really two things. One, someone canceled plus because they said I wasn't talking about serious issues and gave Telpiat as an example, and that's fair. But the same week, I was reading some updates on the Cicada 3301 mystery, and the suggestion was that that mystery was a Talpiot recruitment operation. And there's no way to know if that's true, but that is when I learned more about it, and I was pretty blown away that I hadn't come across this whole segment of research before. Another thing I like about Jeremy is that he really faced the beast firsthand. I think this was referenced somewhere in there, but it does deserve a second mention. But Jeremy took the mic at a rally, tried to ask some raw questions about this stuff. I think, when are we going to start being ethical Jews and Americans is the exact quote. But then he was actually physically removed and arrested. And there was a lawsuit and everything too. But that's really going for it, you know? That is walking the walk. And I like his whole MO of trying to get these politicians on the record. They are typically inside a pre-sanctioned media bubble that won't ask difficult questions, so you can't really hold them accountable for their words. And Jeremy has tried to correct that, so good on him. In higher side news, I am kind of sick, if you can't tell, and I'm trying to navigate my way through this as best I can. I guess I've been working sick all my life. It really isn't that big of a deal. It's the American way to some extent. But I'm definitely eating a cornucopia of superfoods because we got another joint session in just a few days. Coming up on the 25th, that is Friday, 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. I'll post it in all the usual places to remind you if you're online in the moment. As always, it's something we do every month and it's open to anyone to pop in and tell me about their strange experiences, local conspiracies, or privileged information. And then we archive it for plus people as an added thank you for supporting me in doing what I like to do. And speaking of plus, obviously, I spent an extra hour with Jeremy, as always, for plus people. And some of that conversation today related to something called the Stuxnet virus. I'm sure a lot of people have heard about that saga, but it was quite a big thing in the news, although largely swept under the rug considering how serious it really is. Got a little more elaboration on kill switch diplomacy, 
talked about the wake of 9-11 and the role that that event played in this rollout, so to speak, and then some other forms of techno-tyranny. And overall, I just think it went great. Loved that we got into some solutions too. I'm actually quite excited to have him back and get into some of the secret projects, secret tech stuff, and engineering the Amazon. We touched on it, but I'm sure there's more there. It's okay that we didn't get it all in the first time, because what was brought to the table was pretty new for us, I think, whereas the weirder stuff we're a bit more familiar with. But with that, (laughs) I'm going to go try to armor up this immune system, so I'm getting out of here. I will see you on the 25th for the joint session, and I got two more shows in the works for you before we close out January, so stay tuned and take care. Your move Zionists, kill switch controllers, and architects of this global techno-tyranny, your fucking move. Well, they tie that yellow ribbon round the oak tree, they've worn out Sing with me, and that's where they found.